I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story in the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and joined with me today is Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. So Chuck, you are probably incredibly busy right now preparing for your draft for your second book that's coming out soon, but I'm glad that you were able to take the time to meet with me today. My gosh, you're you're making me freak out now. I have been up to three (laughs) in the morning, like every night. So I'm cramming and it it won't be done on time if my publisher's listening right now, but hopefully soon. So yeah, expect it next year. It'll come out. It'll be, it'll be done. It's getting close. Just not there yet. Well, take a deep breath because today we are going to be covering a very interesting topic that has been raising my awareness on a number of different issues regarding forest fire management. So published in ProPublica and written by Elizabeth Wheel, our story today is entitled, They Know How to Prevent Megafires, Why Won't Anyone Listen?, In this article, the author describes how the suppression of naturally occurring forest fires over many decades mixed with politically driven burning policies, complicated bureaucracies, and mismatched profit incentives has led to the catastrophic forest fires we are seeing today in California. So while experts have known what needs to be done technically, which the author says is frequent strategic controlled burns, The organizational power struggles and cultural aversion to controlled burns makes it nearly impossible to implement. So while reading the article, the subject immediately sparked the concept of anti-fragility in my mind. We often talk about this in an economic sense, but I thought the author did such a good job of reframing forest fires because as a culture, we often perceive fires as being only destructive, and uh, they are in fact a part of a cycle of renewal of our natural ecosystems. So in the example of forest fires in California, we've set up these systems that suppress this natural system of destruction and renewal. And in doing so, we've made that environment incredibly fragile for human habitat. I'm curious, Chuck, if that's something that came up for you as well. Yeah. Well, Jared Diamond wrote a book called Collapse, And I highly recommend it to everybody listening. If you haven't read it, please do. It's such a good book. And he has a whole section on forest fires. I mean, this was 20 years ago. This is not something, you know, that people haven't known for a long, long time, particularly in in regards to forest fires. We had a policy, you know, largely coming out of the post-World War II, a little bit like the Depression post-World War II era, where we would as soon as there was any type of flame or spark at all, we would go out and suppress the fire. We would go out and, you know, put it out as quickly as possible. And of course, you know, what happened was over time, instead of having small burns in many, many places, which may have been uncomfortable and may have stopped us or slowed us from running roads through the middle of places and doing housing subdivisions on the sides of mountains and, you know, putting houses in the middle of forests, we would have been thwarted from doing those things had we you know, had to deal with regular routine small-scale burns. 
instead we went out and put out all those fires and then all that underbrush builds up all that old undergrowth starts to create basically a tinder box out of these forests and now what happens is when you get a small fire it's so loaded with explosive flammable material that the forest just goes up and and stuff that wouldn't normally burn uh, is taken down in the massive conflagration. If you're an environmentalist, this is an apocalypse. If you are a homeowner, you know this is a strong chance of being an apocalypse, depending on on where you live. There's really nobody that benefits from this policy over the long term. Yet we're stuck with it, and it's the system that we have adopted and used. And no one seems to be in a position. And if they are in a position, they are not of the mindset or the will to actually deal with this problem. And so annually, we get these crazy level of, uh, of annual forest fire destructions in one of, you know, in one of our most populous, most uh, economically uh, important, uh, most high visibility places in the country. And it's just baffling. It's baffling why this continues like this. Yeah, well, the author talked about that concept of the war on fire mentality in, in California, where for the past 100 years, fire suppression has been the primary strategy for coping with a region that is designed to burn, essentially. She also had a really interesting cultural take where she describes how California's culture has been heavily influenced by the gold rush and how an extractive relationship with nature influences how Californians have managed forest fires in today's world. She describes how tribal communities interacted with fire in a more symbiotic way, understanding the benefits of fire to their own societal systems and managing themselves around their occurrence. This likely wasn't a practice that tribal communities started doing overnight. This is the result of generations of trial and error to establish a balance of limiting risk while benefiting from the destructive cycle of forest fires that leads to replenishment of soil. This is consistent with the concept of spooky wisdom that you've talked about before and described in your book. For many reasons, I'm sure that this is a piece of spooky wisdom that has been lost as Native people of the region were dispossessed or wiped out during the era of the gold rush. The people who migrated to California just didn't have this intergenerational knowledge about how society needs to function in this new environment. Do you agree with that take or is is yeah. there something more there? No, I, I totally agree. And I, I think spooky wisdom is the best, you know, one of the best descriptions too. Understand how this comes about. I think we want to take indigenous peoples, you know, we want to take Native Americans and bestow them with some deep, you know, embodied wisdom that uh, eludes us today. And I, I think in some ways that's true. But I think it, it's it's doing a disservice to the fact that you know we could actually have this wisdom too if we were a little more humble in how we went about things. What you had with those cultures is you had, in a sense, a forced humility because the people who were not humble about it uh, suffered, died, and, and went away. The people who were, the people who learned how to live with periodic fire, the people who learned how to adapt to it, the societies who learned how to deal with this and, and embrace it and, and actually become stronger and better from it, those societies prospered and, and thrived. 
And so, yes, the the wisdom that gets passed down is one of here's how you deal with this. This this happens now and again. Here's how you deal with it. I'll, I'll go back to Jared Diamond. He wrote another book called The World Before Yesterday. I think is what it was called. Again, I would just read everything Jared Diamond's ever written. I think he's he's genius. But The World Before Yesterday talked about his time he spent with primitive cultures, and you use air quotes around primitive, primitive in a, in a Western sense, primitive cultures in New Guinea. And one of the things that he found was that repeatedly they would have these practices that seem very odd. One that comes to mind quickly for me is they would not sleep near any tree that was showing signs of being dead or dying. And, you know, Jared Diamond is like one night he was out and it was raining and he's like, I'm going to sleep next to this tree. And none of, none of the other people would, they went and slept out in the middle of this open area and got soaked all night. And Jared Diamond sat under this tree. And he thought, this is really backwards. This doesn't make any sense. Like, why would they, why would they do this? And the more he thought about it and the more he conversed with them and talked to them and actually tried to listen and think about what they said, it became clear. Sometimes trees fall down. Trees that are showing signs of being dead or dying, they will randomly lose a big limb or something will fall down on you. And if you break your leg, if you break your arm, if you are injured by a tree, you're not in a place where you can get medical care. You're not in a place where you can get to a doctor. You are going to suffer that as a lifelong injury. So would you rather you know, take the risk, the very real risk of suffering a lifelong injury? And by the way, do this 365 days a year for decades, and eventually the odds will go against you. Or are you just going to sleep in a field and get a little bit of rain at night? And, and that's what they've learned to do. You can call that from one perspective, backward and ignorant. But the reality is, is that on the ground with a real life lived, uh, it's deep, spooky wisdom. It's wisdom that has kept people alive. It becomes like cultural knowledge. We have lost that cultural knowledge and we've lost it largely because we've been able to, in a sense, countermand nature. We try to do this in markets. You know, right now the Federal Reserve is trying to countermand market uh, feedback. So, you know, this is something that humans... uh, the whole story of Icarus flying too close to the sun is is a story about you know trying to countermand nature and reality. Th- this is a recurring human theme, and I think you know the more we can learn from that spooky wisdom about hubris and about you know the need for humility, th- the better position we're going to be in from a strong town standpoint and just from a, a human standpoint. Well, in California, to me, seems to be one of those places that. I mean, it's it was recently developed in in the aspect of of human time, and it's a place that seems to be very detached from spooky wisdom that was derived from settlement patterns around the world as people kind of moved through the United States to the West. And California is largely built in a way that is around the disruptive technology that was the car, and nothing against cars, but we we've built a lot of environments around this new technology without sitting down and conservatively kind of planning out how we would build our environment. So not only is California not necessarily managing fires in a way that that is derived from spooky wisdom, but their cities are also not necessarily built in a way that uh, draws from intergenerational knowledge of how you build human habitat that is cities. Can I rant for a sec? Sure. So do you remember Hurricane Harvey? 
Yes. Um, th this was the big hurricane that struck Houston. And, you know, H Houston received what like literally was like the thousand year or 10,000 year flood. I mean, they got something like in, in the city of Houston, uh, something like 30 feet of water fell on it. I mean, it was, it was, it was absolutely insane. I remember reading somewhere, like if this had happened in Washington, DC, the Washington monument would be underwater. So, I mean, you're talking like, you know, epical levels of, of water. And I remember all the kind of piling on, whether it was the New York times or, uh, you know, city lab or who in our space or whoever it was, we're piling on about Houston's lack of zoning and lack of land use controls. And they let people build in floodways. And I kept trying to point out at the time, like, look, it doesn't matter how much planning you do. If you have water up to the top of the Washington monument, it doesn't matter how much drainage you have or don't have the whole place is flooded. Like that's just a, this is just a stupid take on things like have some compassion. When we look at California, what I feel is like we're getting the, the exact opposite right now. All these articles that I'm reading, they front load the whole conversation about climate change. Climate change is causing this. This is caused by climate change. You've got the governor out there pitching a fit, like, like yelling at the camera going, when are we going to wake up and start dealing with climate change? And literally he's standing in a state where, okay, maybe climate change is accelerating this problem. Like I'm not even, I'm not even going to argue that point. Like, let's just say, yes, climate change is making this worse in California, but it is only making worse what they themselves have created. It's only magnifying a problem that they themselves have perpetuated over decades and decades of horrible policy and that they themselves, regardless of what happens with the climate, could actually take steps to alleviate today and they're unwilling to do that. They could go out and do controlled burns. They could go out and, and do patchwork management of these places. They could not build houses in the middle of forests. They could not put millions of dollars, billions of dollars in a year into expanding highway systems and having more people living further from where they work. They could do these things, but they don't do them. And then they turn around and say, well, hey, it's climate change as if there's nothing we can do. All you people out there driving are causing these problems to us. When is Washington, D.C.? When is the U.N.? When is someone else going to solve this for us? And it, it drives me nuts because I don't want to have the debate over climate change. I believe the climate is changing. I believe that humans are causing that. I believe that the problems in California are being accentuated by climate change. But when that is the focus of our conversation, we give up so much agency for things that we can do to make this better today. And, and that's what drives me nuts is that obviously we're in an election cycle, everything gets crazy in an election cycle, but I think California can do so much to deal with this. And I don't know why they seem unwilling to take those steps, especially from a state that you know prides itself on being this bastion of progressive uh, thought and action. Like what is going on here? And end of rant, sorry. That was a great rant. Well, one of the most <laughs> troubling conclusions, yeah, that, that was a good one. The one of the most troubling conclusions that I got from this article is the notion that your state can be literally on fire and still cultural and political systems are so strong that we continue to just ignore what we know needs to be done. If what needs to be done are patchwork management of forest fires and a more nuanced approach, 
it kind of shocks me that it's that difficult to do what needs what is right because there's this NIMBY issue described where residents aren't willing to accept seasonal controlled burns and the political issue that can be summarized as I guess the fire suppression industrial complex and one interviewee suggests that Californians need to change their relationship with fire and controlled burning needs to become less centralized and more of a healthy community practice This would be more consistent with the fire culture of the Southeast, where fire is not just for professionals and not just for employees and their contractors, but rather a very intentional tool that is implemented locally to deal with a regional issue. My big question is, when we know what the technical answer is to a problem, what does it take to change our practices? Because doing local burns and changing that relationship seems really difficult, but it seems like it's it's the right thing to do rather than to just give up agency to some other authority. That's the million dollar question, right? Like what's the way out of this? And I, I think there's two approaches. Let's give them both a voice here. I think one approach, and this tends to be the California approach, is to muddle through, have a really high level of dysfunction create these systems that are not really bottom up, but are very veto ready. So like the local homeowners association can veto this and the little neighborhood group can veto that. So a lot of like public engagement, but not really any public power. And then to resolve that, come in with some big top-down edict. Here's what we will do in all cases, in all places. Uh, you see this in the housing world where you know there have been these attempts at statewide rezoning and statewide mandates for this and mandates for that. You have this dysfunctional overlay that you try to handle with like a strongman approach. Th- there's another way to do this. This would be my thinking. In terms of forest fires, it, it becomes very complex. But devolving this down and actually trying to embrace that spooky wisdom, putting people at the regional level, at the local level, responsible for taking care of these forests. Will you have problems that evolve out of that? Yes. Will people screw that up at times? Yes. Will that have you know damage? I'm sure that it will. But overall, I think more hands taking care of this stuff, more people responsible for it, more innovation, more people figuring stuff like, how do we do a good control burn? How do we work through these processes? How do we meet with people who live around these places and help them get on board so that you know their homes don't get burned down? They can be part of managing these places for the benefit of all. I think that the more we fear the bottom-up uh, approach, the more we fear people, the more our reactions will be this fragile, put off, put off, put off any difficult conversation until the whole place is on fire. And I mean, you saw the pictures from San Francisco of the Golden Gate Bridge with the the background glowing orange. That's like, you know, the road. It's like Cormac McCarthy. You know, it's like, this is crazy. Like, what is going on? The the place is on fire. Let's go, people. I think California, and, and I think you know, California as kind of the exemplary of this in the U.S. has to learn to devolve power if they want to get something done and not, not devolve feedback. Feedback is cheap and easy. Actually devolve power, um, you know, where it's, it's you not only get to have feedback and, and be part of the decision-making process, you have to make the decision and you have to see that through. That's a very different system than the one Californians have been the most comfortable with. 
Yeah. And I think that's going to be something that I can just imagine it would be difficult to change the culture in that way. But if I were living in California, I would be very concerned that, you know, my leader is just kind of looking toward another entity to solve a problem that scientists are saying can be solved by changing the, our relationship with fire. So that that is a little bit concerning. And like, what does it take to change these policies? Does the whole thing need to burn down? Because I don't, I don't think that's an option. Let me rant again slightly. Let's listen to science. I'm sitting here in Minnesota, and I live in a conservative part of a very kind of blue state that's now kind of becoming a purple state. We get all the time, we got to listen to science. Science leads the way. Why aren't we listening to scientists? Well, for crying out loud, California, listen to your scientists. Like they're telling you what to do. They're telling you what needs to be done here. And this is not like, you know, cutting edge kind of, you know, way out there, uh, hypothetical science. This is, as we said at the beginning, spooky wisdom. This is stuff that people have known for thousands and thousands of years. You just thought you could manage your way out of it from the top down and you can't. Let's listen to the scientists. Let's listen to the best practices. Let's go out there and, and take care of this stuff. I think in Minnesota, I will say, you know, in the Midwest in general, we've not had, it's not a state designed to burn. I think that was the quote from the article, the way California is kind of laid out with the dry air, uh, the elevation changes, the, the you know, old forests that, you know, we're, we're not as designed to burn as that, but we've had our share of of big fires and we've had our share of, of things like that. We had a, a big event where in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, a big wilderness area in the northern part of the state. In the 90s, uh, it blew down. They had a huge blowdown and you know lots and lots of trees down. We wound up doing some control burns in that to control like the worst of it, but we also had to deal with some very large fires. And I, I think the lessons learned from that was, you know, to get out there and be more proactive, to to help nature, in a sense, nudge nature along to do its thing, but not to try to like be nature or replace nature. That's a scientific approach. And, and we know how to do this. You know, humans get this stuff. We really need to be trusting our scientists. I would much rather be trusting somebody on an issue who thinks about this issue all day, every day, and it's all they're concerned with than somebody who just kind of is politicking and has a hot take about something um, and has no nuance. It's Nuance is so incredibly important in these kinds of discussions. If we are going to be um, in agreement that death spiral is not an option, drawing from our conversation a couple of weeks ago, because they're heading towards death spiral and that should not be an option. Joe Minicosi bought me a hat and I love it. It's one of my favorite hats. And it just says, failure is an option. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the reality is, is that failure uh, is one of the options on the table. And it actually is an option that fixes a lot of things. I brought up Hurricane Harvey. I think one of the horrible things about Hurricane Harvey is that we were, as a nation, particularly through through our media conversations, so quick to slam dunk on them during their time of suffering. And I, I want to make sure we're not, you know, dunking on California here. I, I think what has happened is horrible. And I feel terrible for the people who have lost their homes, lost their livelihoods, been dislocated, suffered from bad air, suffered from this, just the stress and anxiety of it all. This is 
This is horrible. But unlike Hurricane Harvey, where like the individuals suffering it had no like recourse to deal with it, California actually has recourse to do something about this. Even with climate change as an overlay, there's so much that can be done. And, and I guess if now's not the time to have that conversation, if now's not the time to fix those systems, when is? When is? That's a good question. And I think we'll wrap up this conversation on that note. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been listening to, watching, reading, or just things that have been captivating our attention this week. You are obviously pretty busy these days working on your book, but I wonder if you've had any time to do anything else these days. I have been avoiding reading and it's sad because I read like 60 books a year. I think I've read for like <laughs> six years. This summer I had this uh, this brain trauma thing and I, I cut back on my reading then just to let my mind wander. And I've been working on this book and it's really stolen my reading time. I found what I've been doing, I might've mentioned this last time, is spending a lot of time with my daughter who has become this rabid Minnesota Twins fan all of a sudden. She likes to spend evenings with dad watching the twins. And, you know, we got one more week of the season left. We're going to start playoffs uh, shortly after this episode will be released. And uh, maybe when that's done, she'll want to go back to hiding in her bedroom as a teenager. <laughs> but hopefully not. But right now it's her and I watching twins games every night and then me working till three in the morning to write. So that's what my spare time has become. There's no complaints here. But uh, yeah, not a lot of reading or things to share beyond that. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a great father-daughter activity. I haven't really been um, doing any reading this week either. I am really excited because we're starting to move into the fall season and I'm going to a pumpkin patch tomorrow for the first time since I was a kid. And I'm going to go get a pumpkin and maybe some cider and carve it up and put it out front. Uh, this is the first time that um, I am a homeowner during the Halloween season. So I'm actually kind of excited to maybe decorate the front of my house and oh, yeah. get some fake spider webs and all of that stuff. So Oh, so you're going to do the whole like spooky house thing. Yeah, the whole spooky house thing. Well, okay, I mean, our, cool. our little house is, uh, we've got the wrought iron gate on our terrace and it's, you know, it's kind of a Victorian style facade. So uh, I think we can make it look spooky, actually. I have neighbors who do the full spooky house, like haunted. I, I have one who runs a theater company and actually does like a, it's basically like a full production in his yard and uh, with lightning and scary music. And it's really cool. I know you're in a nice neighborhood with a lot of people walking, but the demographics, do you think you're going to, you know, one pound of candy, 10 pounds of candy? Like where, where on the spectrum you think you're going to be? I don't know. You know, I, I've seen a lot of kids around the neighborhood, but the thing is that in, in Kansas City, some people just go to different neighborhoods to go trick-or-treating. It seems like there's a handful of neighborhoods where wherever you live in Kansas City, you just go to those neighborhoods, um, because probably because maybe people give out like huge candy bars or something. So I actually don't know if we're going to have a lot of trick-or-treaters, 
we do have some friends that go all out and do the um, those inflatables and music and and dressing up and paint and everything like that. So, so we might uh, stop by their neighborhood and and they have a newborn, so see, we might go go stop by there and see their decorations. But I'm hoping that I'll get to hand out some candy this year. I I put out candy one year. Uh, it was immediately stolen. Uh, when I was living in a different neighborhood, <laughs> yeah, the candy was gone within like five minutes, the entire bowl. So See, I have, uh, I have one of those big totes full and I will go through that in a night. So I'll get you like a count. It's something like 2,400 pieces of candy that I bought. Oh <laughs> it's insane. It's, but we live in the best neighborhood in Brainerd for, um, for trick-or-treating. I mean, literally like starting at 4.30 until like eight or nine at night, there's just kids everywhere. So it's it's glorious. I hope that happens to you. Me too. I'm, I'm really excited. I hope my neighborhood has lots of trick-or-treaters and Halloween is, I, I hate saying this, but it might be my favorite holiday. <laughs> uh, I know people I like that it. and and it's, it is fun. It's more fun now living amongst people close neighbors with a lot of kids than it was when I lived in the the big lot out in the suburb. But yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the whole vibe of autumn and, you know, I'm one of those people. I oh. like, I like pumpkins. I, and I have the space now to carve pumpkins and, you know, you'll see in December, I'll be making gingerbread houses too. So I'm pretty excited. I start getting a little in the baking mood now. And so I make, um, in the fall, I tend to make Rice Krispie bars with candy corn in it, which is actually is a much better than it sounds. That's kind of like, I make that and then warming up for fall. So uh, it doesn't yeah. sound good, but I might look into that just because it would be fun to bake something. <laughs> I don't like candy corn very much, so I might just make it and, and give it to my husband or something. See, it's really easy to do. Um, before we quit, I, I wanted to just say, we did have someone who emailed me about the show and they said they really love listening to the show, but their favorite part is the music. And I thought we should let people know, uh, remind them, because it's been a while since we've said this, where our music comes from. Yes. Shout out to Kimmet Coleman. He is the artist that's behind the music for this show, go to YouTube and look up the song Streetcar Song. He let us use this soundtrack for the introduction and closing for this show. And if you listen to the whole song, it's a really, really awesome song. It's like on my playlist now. And he's a local Kansas City artist and has put out a couple of albums this summer, actually. So yep, I would highly encourage you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me, Chuck. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Have a good weekend. You too. Take care.